0: Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here uh, on Labor Day uh, weekend of all weekends. So um, I'm glad you stayed in town, uh, judging by our uh, need for kids volunteers today. Uh, A lot of y'all are missing. Um, And so, not y'all. Clearly, you guys are here, uh, but those that might listen to podcasts or whatever else. Um, So, congratulations uh, for being present uh, today. Um, Before I dive in, I do want to pray for um, just a a few current events or needs. Um, The first is is a prayer for the people of Pakistan. Um, If you aren't uh, aware of the news, um, like close to a third of the country is underwater. Um, 33 million people are affected by some floods right now. Um, There's droughts on either side of them, but it's causing them to get a significant amount of water. Um, And so um, we're going to pray for them, uh, for just life and protection. Uh, God certainly has an interest in in preserving life. And so um, that that we would pray uh, for those that might be suffering there and healing and restoration uh, for those places. Uh, The second issue uh, to pray for um, is for uh, missionary partners of ours, Scott and Jenna, uh, who we sent out uh, overseas. Um, um, There's a lot of circumstances that are really, really hard right now for them, um, both both in-country and even team dynamics that they're working through. Um, and um, they just need some prayer. Uh, we just need to be uh, in prayer for their situation um, to, to find a resolution that they are desperately wanting right now um, for, for their situation. That's about all I can disclose um, just because of what's going on um, for them uh, and where they're at, but, um, but we need to be in prayer uh, for them. So let me pray. Uh, God, I do pray. Pray for the people of Pakistan and uh, just a tremendous amount of um, suffering and um, people just crying out for for help, um, for for restoration, for safety, uh, all of it. And so, God, I, I know um, ultimately you are a God of life and. Um, So, God, we do pray for your intervention. We pray for um, healing of the land, both the the people, but um, even physically the land, um, and a restoration. That when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying for the end of floods and death and all those things. And so, uh, God, we do pray for your kingdom to come uh, to the land of Pakistan right now. And we pray for the witness of the church in the midst of that, um, that there are... um, Christians on the ground, that they would uh, show what your kingdom's like, speak of you as the king um, in the midst of um, a, a world that feels um, chaotic um, and hopeless, you, that you are a, a living hope that's beyond circumstances. And so, God, we do pray for them. And I do pray for Scott and Jenna. Um, God, we pray for um, you to make a, a, a straight way um, where things feel uh, unknown, uh, that you give them clarity this week, <clears throat> that where doors have been closed, that you would open. Um, and so God, uh, we, we do um, keep them in your prayers uh, this morning. I pray all your name, amen. So last week, if you were here, um, I had a chance to kind of reflect a little bit on um, some of my travels this summer, uh, particularly to Israel. Uh, and just some of the lessons that are learned um, when you see some of the places, locations, the, the, even the topography, understanding sort of that, that things like the wilderness, that when we hear that word or read that word sometimes in our scriptures, uh, we, we imagine a different thing than is probably on the ground there and it causes us to, to maybe have um, uh, mistaken interpretations to, to how we should read those passages, and what it's really like to walk through a desert to, to for Israel's people to be formed because the wilderness itself is like this. This is the Judean wilderness. It is a pretty barren land. Um, it's harsh. Um, it's difficult. Yet this is the land that so much of Israel is formed in. Um, this is the land also of the shepherds. If you are a shepherd, you would take your animals here because farmland is so scarce, you keep it for growing crops and not raising your your animals. And so we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Amos, so many people in the story of God that are shepherds. We find Israel wandering in the Sinai wilderness and God speaks of it as he led us like a shepherd during that time. It's such a beautiful analogy. And so we walk through that and what it looks like for God to be a shepherd in the wilderness. And today I kind of wanted to change things up. I I had an original plan, but at the same time I knew it was going to be Labor Day and kids were going to be in here, and it was going to be a little bit different. And so uh, I want to keep running a little bit with some of these lessons that really the desert and the wilderness sort of teach us. And so this week I want to talk about water. Now I say the phrase living water, what comes to mind? Now this is the call and response kind of, I'll, I'll take Shouted out or verbal answers here. When I say living water, what what is the first thing to to come to mind? What do you what pops in your memory? What rivers? Rivers? Yeah, rivers are good. What was that one? The ocean? Yeah. Gosh, I'm already getting feedback. What else? Anything else? Living water. I mean, you could say Jesus too, but that's kind of cheating in this. But thinking more literally of physical things like oceans and rivers. Anything else? Lakes. lakes. Yeah, lakes would be probably in this category. Yeah. Ultimately, the, the phrase, the, the, Heim, the, the, the Hebrew here, um, really speaks to um, anything that humans haven't touched yet. So, what was that? Waves? Sure, yeah. Um, so, rivers and springs and uh, even rainfall would be considered living water. As soon as it's in a cistern, as soon as it's in a well, as soon as it's in a bucket, as soon as it's any kind of things, it actually takes on a new phrase and it wouldn't be considered living water. It would be um, not directly from God. And God has a lot of lessons like this in the Old Testament. There's even times where he's like, hey, I want you to build you something, but I, w- I want you to build it only out of uncut rocks. I want you to make it as natural, as, as crafted by me as possible. And, and living waters is the water version of that, the, the natural, only coming from God idea. Now, have any of you had a chance to do any sort of hiking in a very desert-type place? Maybe you've done the Grand Canyon or something like that. Anybody? Where have you gotten to go? The Florida. Okay. Yeah. Green Canyon. Green Canyon. Yeah. Just wonderful places. Beautiful places. Yeah. But they're, they're harsh, aren't they? They're hard places to hike. And, and sort of what's your relationship with water on that kind of experience? Yeah. And it's hard, especially if you're coming from, if you're a southerner, right? Because guess what? We know how much water we lose. Do we not? Because all you got to do is walk outside that door and you will feel the amount of water that you lose from your body. But as soon as you go to a place like the desert, that is not your experience. It's like you're losing water, but it's evaporating so quickly. You don't don't feel it. You don't necessarily know. Like you would here. You would just be drenched. And so water is this really precious thing, obviously, because you're not only losing it, but you're getting thirsty. You're becoming slightly dehydrated. And it's complicated, too. How much water do I bring? How much water do I really want to carry? What will get us just as much there? Because water's not light. So how much do I really want to take with us? And, And it causes, when you're thirsty, this sort of desperation. It even causes your brain to start shutting down. There's a pretty tragic story, even from this spring, of a family traveling uh, near Yosemite who got a little lost on one of the paths, got just off the path. And the family ultimately died from hyperthermia, um, hyper, just too hot, not hypo, hyperthermia, and um, dehydration. And they were only a couple feet from the path. But their bodies started shutting down. Their brains started shutting down that they didn't have the ability to really comprehend. Like, I should have asked you guys. This is your expertise. Um, Sorry, the mutics, like, that's their specialty. This is what they study. Um, But, uh, yes, this, this whole experience of being desperate for water, being wanting to quench the thirst. So let's look at what David writes. Now that we have a little bit of that setting. And imagine yourself, you're in the desert. Because that's what we see in Psalm 63. Now if you have your Bibles, this is always a fun thing. So all these numbers, chapter numbers, verse numbers, none of that is in the original Hebrew or Greek, okay? It's always a fun lesson to learn that. Um, even these titles are not in the Hebrew and Greek. So sometimes reading your Bibles we you're like, oh, like this is the start of a new sentence. It's like, hmm, not necessarily. But what is, particularly in the Psalms, actually in the original text, the original manuscripts, are sometimes these little, uh, depending on your Bible publisher, sometimes it's like all caps, and it's like this little introduction line to the Psalm. But those are actually included in the original manuscripts. And so Psalm 63, what does some of your Bible say? Does anybody have one open? Does it say right under the title, there's like a little line there. What was that? Psalm of David, when he was where? In the wilderness of Judah. So this is David, out in the desert place that we just talked about, this sort of dry, he's on the run at this point in the storyline, away from the king, but let's read his experience being in this, imagine yourself in this dry and deserted place, and he writes this. Oh God, you are my God. I should do this, sorry. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And I'm going to continue on in verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So this young man, wandering in this wilderness in Judah, he is running, we believe at this point when he writes this song, running for his life. As harsh as it was, the desert life was hotter and drier. Running for his life from his king. He's had the promise that he's going to be the king, but it hasn't come to fruition yet. He's away from all of his family, his loved ones, his wife this harshful and painful reality of this desert, but he's also literally in a desert, both in life and in location. Yet in these words, the analogy he uses, the way he speaks is to say, God, you are the answer to my thirst. Like my soul just wants you, like it wants water. I'm thirsty for you. And he says, God, I I saw you in the sanctuary. I saw you in the caduceus holy place. And in this barrenness, in this harsh desert, where he's suffering, he says, "But I, I, you're enough. I, I can still see you. Where there was no water on his lips, his lips were still moist with praise in that moment. Where there was no food, he still can find a feast from God. He even says, my soul clings to you. It's the same word um, that's used in Adam and Eve uh, when they joined together in Genesis 2, when they're sort of this marriage moment in Genesis 2. They, they cling together, and David's saying, my soul, soul wants that. And in this hard and painful and struggling moment, he's singing, saying, God, you're here. And it doesn't necessarily fix the circumstances for David. It's actually going to come a while later. But here, he learns a lesson of what it's like in the desert. And David longs for God as his body longs for water. He has that same sort of longing for God to quench his thirst. It's a lesson that can be learned literally by seeing it, too. In the midst of our drive down, um, as we talked about last week, Jerusalem and it's sort of built upon this mountain range, the Judean Mountains, and the wilderness is on the backside of those, kind of down towards the Dead Sea. And as you head down that road, it is brown and dry, and there's nothing. There's just shepherders every now and then, kind of on the hillsides, camels and sheep, and you get down to the Dead Sea. And you can drive along, and there'll be some signs for a few different things. And one of those paths is here. So, this is from above the Dead Sea. I didn't shoot this, I didn't have a drone or anything. But um, this is above the Dead Sea, kind of towards uh, the Judean Mountains. And so, uh, all those mountains off in the distance, all those brown, <laughs> lifeless mountains, are the Judean Wilderness Mountains. But in the little valleys there, you can start seeing pockets of green, these little spots kind of popping through. And if you can find them, you go up into those canyons a little bit, you'll find a place like this. If it changes, there we go. You'll find a place like this, which is crazy because you go like 15 yards outside of this little canyon and it's just brown. You would have no idea that this even existed, but you find these beautiful little oases. This one's En which is one of the more famous ones. Actually, David ends up here when he clips Saul's tassels. That's the whole other story I'm not preaching on. But um, And Getty is, is a part of the Bible, these little oasis places in the desert. And in these desert places, in this wandering in the wilderness, there's still water. There's still life. There's still living water, which would be these um, springs. And it's just enough. So as David writes, as a deer pants for flowing streams, pants for water. So pants my soul for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This picture, he's still picking up on it like a deer that's, that's in the desert and it's thirsty and it wants water. And it's, it's, it's wanting these things. It's like my soul. It longs to be satisfied by God, the giver of water. Oh, it didn't move forward, did it? We might have to work on this. Um, speaking of deer, I'll just give you this little nugget, not connected to water per se, but it's, it's not enough to preach a whole sermon on, but we'll, we'll unpack it here. Um, so in the desert, you have these kind of deer, they're, they're sort of goat deer, um, called Ibexes. They're probably the much more common um, animal that you would find. Um, even the, the Tish Zoo, the, the zoo there in Israel would say, this might be the deer that David speaks of. It's a fascinating animal. Oh, my battery just died. That's okay. I got paper notes. Great. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You've got these, um, these, deer, these, these ones, and they are like walking up these mountains, like just casually in ways that like, you don't, they must have suction cups on their feet or something, in ways that they are just nimble enough to do so. And it's super fascinating to watch them. And David, at some point uh, in 2 Samuel, there's this song that he sings about his time in the wilderness. And one of the things he says here in 2 Samuel 22, um, and I actually didn't fix this between services. I'll go back to the deer. Is, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. Now, it's a fascinating thing for him to say because when we're in sort of the desert world, when, when things are harsh, when suffering is happening, when our lives are not how we want them to be, we, we tend to go, God, fix this. God, make our path straight, get the rocks out of the way, just make it better. And I don't think that's always a wrong thing to think, but I find David's words here super fascinating. Because he simply says, you gave me the right feet. You gave me feet like a deer when I was in the wilderness. When I was on the run, you, you, you gave me what I needed to navigate where I was in this tough place, in this tough path, was where things were steep, where things were difficult, where things were really hard in my life. God, you gave me feet like a deer, the ability to navigate it. Anyways, let's get back to water. Sorry, I just find that little line fascinating from that song. And so you have these lessons that that David's gonna learn about living water, but even more so, Israel's gonna learn about living water as well. Just like last week, there's shepherd's lessons for both. Now, if you're Israel, what is um, some of the lessons you've learned about water? As you've crossed the, the Red Sea, which obviously is a water lesson too, but as you cross, you get into the desert, you start wandering through the desert. Does anybody remember one or two of the lessons that they had to learn pretty quickly, even before the 38 years that they end up wandering? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the big one. That's the one we're going to talk about. Um, so the first one, they get to a well, but it's bitter, and it's, it is what it is. And it becomes a whole lesson. They end up going to this oasis. But later on, all the Israelites are grumbling because they're in Sinai. There's no water anywhere in Sinai. It's, it's actually quite rare. And they're grumbling. They're thirsty. They don't know what to do. And so God says, here's what I need you to do, Moses. I need you to get some of the elders. Come to Mount Horeb, which is God's mountain, and I just want you to strike it with your staff. And out of it comes this water for the people, this living water. It's not, it's not a cistern, it's not anything else. It becomes this thing that even Paul will say it's like a rock that wanders around the desert with them. And, but this water for them to drink from. This, this lesson about God being the source of the living water. I think it's even fascinating that they strike the mountain of God for this to happen. And so this lesson gets learned pretty early for Israelites. It's pretty early for David. So he says things like he does. But that's not all. The prophets will pick up on this as well. Jeremiah 2. For my people have committed two evils. They forsake me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So again, we get the actual language of living water. And he's basically pointing out, look, I could be for them like, like an Ein Gedi, this this oasis, this place of living water. I want to be that for my people, but instead, what do my people have done? It's made cisterns. Does anybody know what a cistern is? It's a word we read in scripture, but we don't, we don't really have cisterns here in America. But does anybody know what a cistern is? A bo- it looks like a box you just made. A pot. Maybe. Anybody else? Anybody ever seen a cistern? Yeah, that's not a bad way to think about it It's a big box. where's this picture? Oh, there it is. Diary show this by accident. So, um, here's a cistern we actually got to visit. Um, if you look in that picture, both of my children are in that picture, standing at the bottom of the cistern. This sucker is. Big. This is one of the most largest ones ever found in history. Um, it's in Masada, where they needed a whole lot of water, and Herod the Great was a fascinating engineer. But there are these giant; they would cut out the rocks, build these giant places to hold water, almost how we think of wells today, but just giant versions of that in rock, as opposed to digging down to the water level. And so, now, how great do you think the water would be in a in a place like this? Yeah. Probably not the best. It's probably muddy. It's still water, so um, you don't really have like chlorine tablets you could just throw in the water or um, special tube pens, whatever straws that you could drink out of. Um, There's none of those things. It is just gross still water. And not only that, but what Jeremiah says here is about broken cisterns. This idea that these places are cracked. That my people have traded instead living water from God for these broken cisterns. And so if you have a broken cistern with a crack in it, what happens? The water goes away, right? It's going to drain out. Uh, During college, uh, I went on a summer trip with the campus ministry I was a part of um, to the beautiful Riviera that is Myrtle Beach. And... They had all these amazing places you could sign up for, but I signed up so late. Um, so instead of it's like, oh, we could work in the Redwoods, or you could be in Newport Beach, or Myrtle Beach. Uh, so um, I ended up in Myrtle Beach, um, and it was special. But we get to this place, and there's like, tons of college students. We're all living in like two-bedroom apartments, like 16 per two bedrooms, uh, which doesn't seem legal. and I'm sure it's not. But the, the little buildings that we had had a pool. When we got there, it was like gross and mud, it was half full, It's disgusting. But we're like, hey, we're 20, and we want a pool for the summer, and so um, we decided just to, to go ahead and clean it out, so we, we clean out the pool, we pressure wash it, we, we do all the work, we fill it with water, we, we put the, the shock ingredients in it so to chlorinate it, and it's, it's beautiful, it's like pristine, it looks amazing. And then the next day, we show up, and the pool's half empty. And what had happened is that, at some point, the pool had cracked, and the owner just never wanted to fix it. But we didn't know that. But this moment where we were so excited to enjoy this pool, to to go in and and to experience this amazing summer swim fest that would have been this pool at our place, turned out to be this major dud. At some level, I think Jeremiah is saying, that's what a broken cistern is to you. And, And you might fill it up and have a little bit of water for a day or two, but guess what? It goes empty. It, it will go away. And I think the critique here from Jeremiah is saying, look, my, my people build cisterns. Things that they, they want to control. In the midst of a harsh moment, in the midst of a desert place, yes, we want water so desperately. And God saying, I will be your living water, but too often I think we run to cisterns that we create. We use things like distraction instead of dealing with our actual hard moments. We look for easy ways out, whatever it may be. Maybe it's a glass of wine every day just to take the edge off. Maybe it's a few pills. We look to new age practices and mindfulness. We seek solutions to problems through education, through politics, through ideologies, working out, eating. There's so many things because we so desperately want to control everything. And that's the fascinating thing about living water. It's the one thing that hasn't been touched. It's the one thing that has to come straight from God and not under the control of men and women. But too often we build cisterns and our cisterns crack. They might provide a little bit of refreshment for a short amount of time, but eventually they go dry. Jeremiah will keep writing, 17 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth or in the dust, which makes a fascinating connection of Gospel of John. But anyways, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. It just continues with this idea of saying, look, they've forsaken. There's water always to be had in God, coming to God, just being in the presence of God, being in the presence of his word, just being even with God's people. There's refreshments that's meant to be had there, but too often we look for other methods to feel refreshed man, if I could just binge watch a show right now, that just sounds so pleasant. But God's saying, yeah, it's like a cracked cistern in your life. There's more to be had. And in the midst of a desert, ultimately coming to God and finding that he actually is enough. And in the desert, there are, in Gettys, There are these moments of water. It isn't where you're going to stay forever. The desert's never meant to be a place for forever. But in the midst of the desert, God will provide. Now, that water theme continues throughout the history of Israel. They actually have a festival that they celebrate that they have a whole water ceremony for. Does anybody know? Let's just say, what are some of the festivals in the life of Israel? Let's cover that first. These are always great. Which one? Booths? Yeah, Tabernacles, booths, uh, that festival. We'll talk about that because that's the one we're going to cover today. What else? Passover. Passover, that's obviously the big one. We connect it to Easter. What are some of the other festivals? Maybe I should preach a series on Jesus and the festivals. Um, what else? What was that? Purim, yeah, where we read Esther's story and it's amazing. What else? Day Day of Atonement. Yeah, that's considered a festival. It's actually the one that's like the most downer of the festivals. Every other Israel festival is this massive celebration, but that one is like, we're confessing our sins, sending a goat away, doing all sorts of kind of dark and harsh things. Pentecost Pentecost is a good one, yes. That's another great one. They have a first fruits festival. Uh, They have um, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, they have a New Year's festival. They have atonement, it's one of those. and so you have all of these festivals built into the life of Israel. One of those is booths. One of those is tabernacles. One of the ones we mentioned. And it has multiple names. And so, um, actually, if you go to North Decatur or uh, Emory to the Jewish Student Union, uh, during this festival, you'll actually see them build these little structures in their front yards. Um, these little makeshift little places that look like a booth in some ways. and So um, what they would celebrate, the main point of that festival was initially uh, remembering their time when they were wandering in the wilderness. So they didn't have homes, they had tents, and so they moved around and so they had temporary dwellings. It would be to celebrate that very thing. Now they also celebrated it to anticipate the, the rains. So this festival is in the fall fall to winter is the rainy season in Israel. Uh, And so um, they would celebrate that to say, hey, thank you for the previous bumper crop this summer. We are praying that God, you bring the rains again. And they would celebrate this festival to celebrate the rains. And so we're going to talk about that piece because it was a party. It was a massive party for the life of Israel. They would party all week long. It was a week-long festival. And then on the last day of the festival, there would be this water ceremony, this ceremony that they would practice uh, every year. And so, um, I don't want to get to John yet. Oh, let's read this from John first. Uh, John 7, when Jesus uh, went about in Galilee, he would not go down to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of Booths, feast was at hand. And so uh, we're going to pick up, we're going to look at the story from John, but this feast is going on. And, and Jesus will eventually actually make it down to the festival. Now, uh, as I said, the festival is going on. And on the last day of this festival, there would be this ceremony. And it's called the water ceremony. And what would happen is the priests uh, from the temple would go down from the temple. I, I know these screens, I don't know if you can see everything on them. The, 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 the priests would go down from the temple down to the pool of Siloam, which is a big, basically a cistern in some ways, uh, for Israel. And we'd go down there with this golden pitcher, this like super famous golden pitcher, and, and proceed from the temple. And they would all be shouting different things. Uh, one of those is Isaiah 12. They would say, with you, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The, the idea of joy and water were actually commonly put together. And so the priest would go down to the pool of would get a, this golden um, um, pitcher full of water. Uh, from the water um, and people would be shouting, it would be a celebration um, and uh, there's even descriptions one description says, the outer temple courtyard, uh, tens of thousands of spectators would gather to watch the the uh, rejoicing of the place of the water drawing. As the most pious members of the community danced and sang in songs and praised to God, the dancers would carry lit torches. They were accompanied by harps and lyres and cymbals and trumpets of the Levites. Uh, even the Talmud says, um, one who has never witnessed the rejoicing of the place of the water drawing has never seen true joy in his life. It was a joyous celebration for them. They danced, and guess what they did? They waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Save us, God, bring us rain. So that gets into a whole other fascinating understanding of the Passover week, but that's another, that's another sermon from this past fall, or past spring. Anyway, sorry. And so you would have this celebration going on, and they would carry this pitcher and bring it up to the temple mount, and they would bring it into the crowds, and they would go to the altar, the altar on the outside that, that really everybody can see, not the inner places. This is something that everyone would see and participate in, The he would bring this picture there, and it would suddenly get quiet, and he would pour out the pitcher, and then everybody would cheer. Now, I think we get a moment to read these words from John. Let's keep going in John's story. Keep going. There we go. On the last day of the feast, the great day. So what day are we on? (laughs) Last day. What happens on the last day? Yeah, water ceremony, right? Jesus stood up in the midst of probably, I mean, as many people as probably fit into the temple mount, and he cried out or shouted. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now at a festival that's very noisy, it's very loud, when do you think Jesus actually yelled these words? It's it's speculation. But the only quiet moment of the whole festival is when that priest gets up to the altar. Everyone gets quiet. And you got to imagine, in the midst of this moment, Jesus just shouting those words of a people who are longing, longing for the living waters of God to show up, longing for a restoration of all things. They're longing for that. And Jesus comes and says, I am the one you are thirsting for. This isn't even the first time Jesus makes a statement in John's gospel. He he actually has this amazing interaction with this woman at a well, a Samaritan woman, an outsider, a a woman who wouldn't have been um, thought of as part of the inside. And here he's with all the insiders, all the people celebrating in Jerusalem. And in both stories, he has to tell the people, look, I am life. I am what your soul is craving. Samaritan woman, Jews gathered for the celebration, both. I am for you. If you want life, if you want the very thing that your soul is thirsting for, I am here for that. But too often, once again, it's cisterns when Jesus is offering for soul to be quenched. Now, I really want to pivot, and this is where I definitely went over, but it becomes the most interesting part to me in some ways. If you pay closer attention to the context here, where are those streams of living water? Because as I read it, it would be like, um, whoever's thirsty, come to me, and I will be living water to you. But what does it say? Whoever believes in me, so any of us by faith who believe in him, in the scriptures, what's going to happen to us? Out of what? Out of our hearts, ultimately, will be streams of living water. Now, that's a pivot. (laughs) As if to say, Jesus is coming and saying, look, I can be life for you. I am the one who quenches your thirst. But what I do for you, I'm calling you to do for others. To be life. To be the ones who provide care and shade and water in the midst of their lives. And, and if, if you don't think so, this will pick up into uh Let's take the book of Acts. This will continue into the story of God because the book of Acts is part of a a two-part story. You have Luke write his gospel, and he's talking about who Jesus is, talking about who Jesus cares about, talking about Jesus' mission, and ultimately what Jesus accomplishes, and then moves in the book of Acts to go, okay, here's the mission that starts to be fulfilled in God's people through the power of the Holy Spirit. So you don't need to come to the first session of, I'm just totally kidding, come to, come to the Luke thing this week. Yeah, I'm totally kidding. Um, but that is very much sort of the drive of those two books in the book of Acts. And the church has a remarkable start. They're caring for the poor amongst them. They are uh, the disciples are healing people left and right, and 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 all of this is happening in the first few chapters right after Pentecost. It seems like the church is really doing what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, let's read the story out of Acts five. It Says this: Now many signs and wonders were regularly done amongst the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Simon's portico, uh, which is part of the temple, the outer wall of the temple none of the rest dared to join them, but the people uh, held them in high esteem. And more than ever, uh, believers were added to, their, to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Hopefully my clicker's on the right side, yeah. So the, uh, that they had even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now let's be real. This is a weird story, right? What stands out to you as the weird part of the story? Yes. Is it not strange that they're like, well, Peter's shadow will suddenly heal us. Like it's some sort of parlor trick. That, that Peter can accomplish somehow. It's a weird story. And it's okay to sometimes approach text and go, that's weird. Because that's, it's a weird story. But maybe there's more going on, at least in Luke's mind as he records the story, than we tend to give them credit for. Because this feels far like Jesus didn't even do shadow healing. This is unique. Why Peter? And why only Peter? Which becomes a great question, too. Now it's important to remember, the Israelites didn't, they were messianic, like they really cared about a future king, but it wasn't like far. Like most of the writing that you would encounter, it was so much more about this age to come, this age when everything was finally set right, this age when things were finally fixed. More than necessarily just about the king. Even as we read Isaiah, uh, Isaiah thirty-two says this: "Behold, uh, sorry. Oh yeah, here's a dude on the mat. Oh, where'd he go? There." in case you want to visualize the shadow mat that guy. Um, it says this, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Now let's unpack this. How many, wait, sorry. How many kings do we have in the story? One king, right? We're good with that. Absolutely, I think it's the fulfillment of that is Jesus, 100%. How many princes or rulers do we have? I mean, more than one, right? Multiples. Multiples of some sort. And a lot of the prophetic language speaks of God taking his throne, but then his people ruling with him. And what we get from this text then. He said, Jesus, yes, Jesus is going to be king. He's going to take a throne as king. And then his people, his, his people are going to rule. And each one of them will be like a hiding place from the wind. Each one of them will be like a shelter from the storm. Each one of them like streams in a dry place. Each one of them like a great rock, rock in a weary land. And that changes things. Uh, I know one pastor I know, he speaks about an Orthodox Jewish friend who says, no, we're not looking for the Messiah per se. But if we were looking for the Messiah, he said, he said this, the scriptures tell me what it will be like. If Messiah is here, there should be the healing of nations. If Messiah is here, there should be a peace brought by the, to the chaos. If Messiah is here, the kingdom of God should be here. Where is it? Where is it? I don't see it. So how can the Messiah have come? And the problem is, sometimes we get so caught up on trying to prove that Jesus fulfilled certain prophecy that we forget that there's prophecy left for you and I to actually fulfill in Scripture as well. That is what Isaiah speaks to. It's like, yes, the king's going to reign, but his people are going to live this out. And this is what they saw in the early church. They would see people... And, uh, uh, take the the marginalized and the broken and the thirsty and the hungry and all these sort of things and bring healing so that no one that had need, didn't have that need met by the community. And the disciples were going out and healing and they were doing all these things. Why? Because Isaiah 32 is being fulfilled because the people of God were in the messianic age and and this age to come where the rulers would finally rule with, with this justice, this restorative justice, this mishpat. The age has come. And this whole new reality that was introduced when Jesus got out of that grave was now being lived out when the Spirit came and the disciples and, and all those who followed Jesus lived out the mission that they were actually called to. And the sick and the forgotten and the marginalized and all of that were, who were longing to sit in shade and find refuge for the storms and find, um, um, drink water in a parched desert would finally have those moments. Now still, why Peter's shadow? Let's go back to the Isaiah text, what does it say? Like the shade of a giant rock, right? What's Peter's name? (laughs) It's fascinating. And I would argue Luke might be doing a little hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, as he pens the story, being like, man, Isaiah's story, Isaiah's prophecy is living out. And even in the shadow of this great rock, (laughs) Peter, there is healing. And that's what we're called to be, brothers and sisters. We, are, we go to Jesus, who is the one who can quench us in the midst of a desert, but we also live this out. And I know some of you are so much more in last week's sermon than this week's sermon. <laughs> it's so much more like, my desert is just so harsh, I just need to know that the shepherd's good. But some of you need this week even more to hear That not only is God the quencher of thirst for your soul, but we are invited in to his great restorative project that he is on, the mission that he is on, to reconcile all things to himself, That ultimately he will accomplish in the end. And he invites us into it. And my worry is that too often the church does not live this out. I mean, I will admit, uh, we'll, we'll probably do a series soon, maybe in the next... Couple of weeks, we'll, we'll start it. Um, where I will just be happy to um, air the church's dirty laundry um, and and deal with it. Um, I think um, so much of what is termed deconstruction and all that kind of stuff is, is related to a lot of things that people just aren't willing to talk about, or really bad teaching that causes uh, people to to not read their Bibles faithfully to not understand what the church is and is not, all that kind of stuff. Um, And I get it, because I'll tell you what, I don't know if the church always for me feels much like the place where I'm gonna find healing and restoration. I find that in Jesus, but I don't know if I always find that in the church. Sometimes it can feel like the least safe place for people. (laughs) To be the unadulterated version of yourself, but we kind of clean up just enough to be acceptable And the church can be a place of judgment and critique. And not always the best place for the hardest seasons, the darkest moments, the worst chapters in life. Sometimes it's even easier with non-Christians sometimes to to walk through that than it can at times with Christians just being real. So when the language gets a little more salty or frustration plays out, it's like, where, where can I do that? To bring dark things into light and to feel like this is the place where I can do that. When this is the exact place, you should be able to do that. And So we'll, we'll, we'll talk through some of that as we go. And I wish I could be better at that and I wish God's people would continue to be better at that. But let me wrap up. I'm well over time. I want to wrap up actually by reading a little bit more out of Isaiah. I'm not going to preach on this little section, but I just want to read the sort of prophecy that Isaiah speaks towards, of what his people will and should and can be. Isaiah 58, starting at verse nine. Oh, went too far, sorry, here we go. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. And if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, all the things that tear apart relationship, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire, where? In scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters will not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations... You shall be called the repairers of the breach or the repairers of the walls, the restorers of streets to dwell in. And that's my prayer for us as a church, that we would be called the repairers and the restorers, that when we pray thy kingdom come, that we would also live out thy kingdom come to all the places that feel like deserts, that we would be water, to all the places that feel like hot suns, to our neighbors and friends, that we would be shade, And ultimately, we would still point to the great shepherd, the great source of living water, the great shade at God's right hand. Let me pray for us, and we'll walk into communion. God, I am thankful for the challenge of your word and the way that ultimately you invite us into the work you are doing. And you fill us with your spirit Not only to quench the thirst of our soul, but to live out what it looks like to be living streams and deserts to others. And God, what a beautiful community project that is. (laughs) Where places like life groups and community, we can live out this very reality. And God, as we move into a time of communion, we are going to remember that all of this is because of your Son. All of this is because of what was accomplished on that cross that takes us from being dry and weary. And by faith, we can experience that same living water. Not because we're insiders, not because of, we're Israelites, not because um, any merit of our own, but simply by faith. And God, you came into this dry, broken, sinful world and you were water for us. And in your death, you who knew no sin took on sin so that we might now become the righteousness of God. Citizens, heirs to your kingdom, and brothers and sisters living out the calling you have for us, a restored humanity. I pray Let's hear in your name, amen. So we give thanks to God, our Father, And our Savior, Jesus Christ, before he suffered, he took bread and and, and the cup as a memorial for the sacrifice he was about to have the next day. And at that last supper, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, he blessed it and gave thanks for it. He said, this cup is a cup of new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, let us proclaim this great ancient truth by saying, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Let's pray, Lord, our God, send our Holy Spirit so this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, into the glory of your kingdom. We pray in his name the prayer that he taught us by saying, our Father in heaven,